Well, I saw this uh, video clip um, on a YouTube that someone sent me not too long ago, and, and it's sad and funny at the same time, and some of you have probably seen it, but it's, uh, I think the, the, the video clip was taken from, from a camera that was mounted in a shopping mall of this lady who's walking along texting on her phone. Maybe you've seen it. And if you haven't, don't Google it right now because you need to listen, okay? Those of you with smartphones, I know who you, how you are. Just exercise some self-control here. But she's walking along so engrossed in her digital conversation, focused on her phone, she's oblivious to anything around her, right? And the video catches her um, walking into a, a low wall. And on the other side of the low wall is, is a big fountain, right? Water. And it actually shows her full on, like head over heels, landing in this fountain in the middle of a mall in front of people. And you watch that, and of course, it's, you're kind of sad because you wonder if she's hurt, um, uh, but kind of funny at the same time. She's just kind of head over heels into this fountain. And you can see in the video, she gets up and she's just drenched in water. Phone probably doesn't work anymore. And if that was me, it's like, how do you recover from that? I mean, how do you walk away with pride intact? Well, you don't. You just, you know, get out of there as fast as you can. Um, Funny but sad video, and yet at the same time, what, what struck me about that, and you can look that up later, it's kind of funny, look up Lady Falls and Fountain texting or something like that, is that is a pretty good visualization or example of what I think many people, how many people live life. And that is they're so focused on what's right in front of them. You know, the pains that we feel, the stresses that we feel, the jobs we need, need to get done, uh, difficulties or successes with our children, um, schedules. And I could just go on down the list of, of things that, that preoccupy the minds of, of people. And I think one of the things that does define today's generation is we are very uh, present tense absorbed. That is, we're, we're looking down and, and, and don't really take the time to look at where we're going. And that, of course, has some rather disastrous effects, as, as the video shows. Only on a spiritual level, it's, it's even more so than that. Of course, I'm not talking about literally our, our focus or obsession with iPhones or digital phones, although that is an increasingly big problem, too. People losing their souls in the digital world, you know, and not living in the real world. I'm talking about more generally just preoccupied with the present tense. Now, Jesus taught us a, a parable. It's recorded in a number of the Gospels, but in the Gospel of Luke, um, he teaches a parable about different responses to the message of the kingdom, uh, the seed, which is the word of the kingdom, which falls on different kinds of soil, um, which are representative of different souls or different um, types of hearts. One of the seeds, of, or one of the soils that the seed falls on, Jesus says, is, is, a, is a thorny heart, um, kind of figure, you know, briars and thorns. And he tells us that it sprouts. It has this initial reaction to this, to this, to this amazing news, which is what the gospel of the kingdom is about, good news, of a God who came and bore our sorrows, our sins, and our condemnation to the cross, rose again to give us life and offer us a new creation um, for all who would believe. I mean, that's good news, the good news of the kingdom that, that will last forever. And we're told in that parable that there's this initial response of this great news. But we're also told that because it's on the thorny heart, that what happens is, and I'll quote Jesus here, he says, as they went along, in other words, as they continued their life path, they were choked by 
And he lists three things. The cares, the riches, and the pleasures of this life. The cares, the riches, and pleasures of this life. That word cares has to do with anxiety, worry, fear. Oftentimes associated with pain and problems. Um, People who are choked out by the concerns, the anxieties, the worries of today, the uh, riches, either the lack of it or the too much of it, and the pleasures, um, seeking after those things that bring us temporal happiness. He says that people who are thorny hearts are people who are preoccupied with those things. They are living primarily for the present tense. And I've read that just a couple of months ago, and it struck me kind of in a new way that they are absorbed in the present. That's what chokes out life. And and, and it seems to me that a world that's lived with uh, just focused on today and and even tomorrow and the problems and the pains and and wealth and anxiety over things are are people who are living um, what Jesus would call that thorny heart choked out kind of life. And I don't think, and Jesus teaches, that we can't truly worship God or live for God when we're doing that. We can't truly worship God or live for God when our focus is present tense, absorbed in the present issues, problems, pains, and pleasures of life. And I say worship God because worship and life, how we live, really are inseparable twins. What we worship, we live for. That's the simple truth. And if what we worship is today, well, then that's what we're going to live for is today. If we're worshiping God, then we're going to live for him, and it's going to affect our daily life. And I don't believe the Bible teaches that we can truly worship or live for God if this is how we're living. The lady absorbed in her conversation. Now, this particular chapter of 2 Samuel provides for us a a rather refreshing picture, um, an example of David who, who doesn't live like this. He's not absorbed in the present. And and you're going to sense from his worship and from his focus and from his praise and the words that he he speaks back to the Lord that he is not living for the moment. He's not sucked into the present life. But he's actually living out his life with some different foundations or roots um, that give him life. And those are the things that should be ours as well. And I'm hoping that his example here will challenge each of us to not live like this, which is not Christianity, but to live in a different way. And he's going to kind of show us the way. We looked at the first part of chapter 7 last week. And if you weren't here, then let me just give you a 15-second overview. David comes to the Lord at the beginning of chapter 7 and says, Lord, I want to build you a house or a temple. And the Lord turns around, and this is my paraphrase. He says, no, you're not going to build me a house. I am going to build you a house consisting of an eternal throne that you'll never lack for a king on the throne. An eternal throne which will bring about eternal peace uh, experienced in the blessing of my eternal love. That, that's the, all these promises kind of focus in that direction. That's the first half of chapter 7, what some have called the summit of the Old Testament promises. Um, Now, in the second half of this great chapter is David's response to all those promises. And it just reveals the focus and um, the the values of his heart. And it's absolutely quite beautiful. See where his praise comes from. Let me read beginning in verse uh, 18. 
says, Then King David went in and sat before the Lord. They received those promises, by the way, indirectly through a prophet. Now it says that he went in and probably went into the tent of meeting where the presence of the Lord was uh, with the ark. And he goes in and he sits before the Lord. And what proceeds from here is a conversation or really an expression of his heart directly to the Lord. He sat before the Lord and said, Who am I, O Lord God? And what is my house that you have brought me thus far? That first part expresses David's um, gratitude or praise for God's grace working in the past in his life. That's kind of in the yellow there where he says, you know, who am I, O Lord God, and what is my house that you have brought me, past tense, thus far? The first part of it is also really important. He's like, who who, who am I? Who am I? It's like he disbelieves that he can, in in an astonished way, disbelieves that he should be the recipient of such, such great grace in the past in his life. Um, God has taken David, who is, a, who is in the pasture, chasing after sheep, the youngest of all of Jesse's sons, the runt of the litter, and he has made him prince over Israel. At this point in his life, that's all past. And he's simply blown away, like, who am I? And that really is foundational to all true worship of the Lord and praise of the Lord and living for the Lord is, is recognizing each day that, who am I? I'm undeserving. There's nothing in me or or that I've done to deserve such graciousness from you. And where we lose that sense of undeserving humility and gratitude, then our worship immediately dries up. And that's one of the things that oftentimes Christians do over time. At first, there's a response to the grace of the Lord, like, I can't believe you chose me. I can't believe you you revealed yourself to me. I can't believe you died for my sin to take away my consequences and my condemnation. I can't believe you've given me an eternal future. And then over time, what happens is we start to subtly feel like we deserve it which is why Christians oftentimes get mad when the Lord takes things away because they've, they've adopted a rather subtle entitlement mentality with the Lord. But to stay fresh is to recognize with David, who am I each morning? Who am I? That's where our gratitude comes from is, is that sense each morning of who am I. To remember back and not forget God's grace past. You were dead in your transgressions and your, your sins. Um, you were following after the desires of the flesh and the body and the mind and were by very nature objects of God's wrath. That's who I used to be, but God, who is rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved you and loved me, he made us alive with Jesus and raised us with Jesus and raised us to the right hand with Jesus. I mean, from bottom to top. And to never forget who we used to be apart from Christ. That's where gratitude in the sense of who am I? That's how he starts. Who am I? And looking at his past grace, what God did in making him a man of the pasture into a man who is a prince. But then he goes on and and he he talks in a different direction of, of God's future grace in his life. That is another root or foundation which gives him joy and focus. He goes on in verse 19 to say, and yet this was a small thing in your eyes. Now, when he says this was a small thing, he's talking about the past grace of God taking a shepherd and making him a king. That was small in the Lord's eyes. He's going to go on to say, there's something much bigger that you have done for me. He says, and yet this was a small thing in your eyes, O Lord God. You have spoken also of your servant's house for a great while to come. 
And this is instruction for mankind, O Lord God. And, and what more can David say to you? For you know your servant, O Lord God, because of your promise. And according to your own heart, you have brought about all of this greatness to make your servant know it. Therefore, you are great, O Lord God, for there is none like you. And there is no God besides you, according to all that, you, that we have heard with our ears. It's like he, he marvels at God's past grace in his life from shepherd to king. based upon the promises that God made, he reveals a future and he's just absolutely astounded at the measure of grace that God has given him a promise about regarding the future. And notice it's 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 a distant future for a great while to come. He knows that this this promise that he's given is, is about an amazing display of grace that's a great while to come, beyond the contours of his own life, God's going to do something amazing because of these promises. And it's not just for a distant future, but notice also it says, and this is instruction for mankind. This isn't a promise that finds its termination point in David's own life, or David's own line, or even the people of Israel, but it will affect the nations. Like, it's just magnificent. And he realized, like, I can't believe I'm the recipient of the promise that's going to flow forward into eternity and impact the nations. Utterly blown away. But notice again, he's focusing on God's future grace that lies outside of the dimensions and the limitations of his own life and death. So he's, you know, responding to God's past grace in his life, and he's, based upon the promises, looking and... Um, Astounded by God's future grace in his life. And we likewise, if, if we are to live with a present joy in a very dark and broken and chaotic world, it requires us to also look forward. You know, to, to be able to think the thoughts of, of, of the biblical writers and be able to say um, that I am persuaded that the sufferings of this present life are not worthy to be compared to the glories to be revealed to us. That's Paul, Romans 8 just doesn't compare. Or we are receiving an eternal weight of glory that is beyond comparison. Or that what God has promised is far more abundantly beyond what we can ask or even think. That's the, that's the Christian passion for what lies beyond this life. It isn't worth comparing. And, you know, if you do a little comparison, you kind of maybe get the idea a little bit. You know, can you imagine the Lord right now walking around to every one of us saying, here's a key to my vacation home in Maui. And I'm, here's the tickets. Um, all expenses paid. And the fridge is packed with food, great food. We're not talking Cheerios. We're talking the best of the best. The cupboards are full. You have an infinity pool right out, your, right out your front door. And it goes right off onto your own private beach, and you're surrounded by palm trees. And you will be there with the best people possible that you love the most and love you, and I'll be there in your midst. And if he gave you the key to that, each of us, I can imagine it because you, you go take vacations, at least you should once in a while. And, um, and it, let's say he said, Saturday, you're going. Like this next Saturday, just six days away. I guarantee you, if that was a reality, or even if you were just going to Hawaii for real, next Saturday, nothing that happened in this week, no matter how bad, would take away your joy, because future Hawaii vacation is pending. You know? 
your, all your tires could blow out on your car on the way to work. You'd say, I'm still going to Hawaii. I don't care. If you have an argument with your boss, you can still say, I'm going to Hawaii. I don't care. You can smash your thumb with a, with a hammer and say, that hurts, but man, I don't care because I'm going to Hawaii. Living in the future glow of this Hawaii vacation that the Lord has granted you with a key. And the thing is, is that what the Lord has promised us is unspeakable. You know, it's, um, you just have, you, you sense in the biblical writers that they, they lacked words to grasp it. So they're like, no eye has seen and no ear has heard and no heart has known what the Lord has planned for his people. The best that you can possibly imagine in this creation is magnified in by infinity in the next. And that's what David's looking for, you know? And he's looking at God's past grace and looking at God's future grace, and, and he's praising because God has shown so much grace to him personally. That's to David and through David. And he transitions, and he's not just praising or grateful to God for what God has done in, to, and through him, but also for the realization of the corporate and undeserved grace that he offers to his people. And see, this comes to light in verse 23. And he says, and who is like your people Israel? Now, Israel's not great because it's a great people. God tells us they're stiff-necked people. They're stubborn. They're sinful. They're rebellious. What makes them great is God chose them in his sovereign grace. Who is like your people Israel? The one nation on earth whom God went to redeem to be his people, making himself a name and doing for them great and awesome things by driving out before your people whom you redeemed for yourself from Egypt, a nation and its gods. And you have established for yourself your people Israel to be your people forever. And you, O Lord, became their God. Isn't it interesting that David considers God's grace towards the people of Israel? And hopefully I don't lose my place here, but um, you and I, by nature of our faith in Jesus, are part of the commonwealth of Israel. That's Ephesians 2. You were once separated from Christ, um, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. And then he switches and says, but now, and the reverse is now true. We are now connected to Christ and part of the commonwealth of Israel. We are part of the Israel of God, connected by faith through Christ. So when it's speaking of Israel here, ultimately it has us in mind too. But you'll notice he goes back again. The one, the one people that you have redeemed. And then he goes past tense again and talks about how God drove out the enemies of Israel from the land. And even before that, back to Egypt when God with a mighty and outstretched arm reached down in grace and power and he rescued and redeemed his people out of the clutches of Pharaoh, brought them to the mountain of Sinai, and he bound himself in covenant to them. As, his, as their God and they as his people, his treasured possession, a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. They're his, and God is theirs. And that is the formative moment of the nation of Israel. That was the birthplace of the nation of Israel. It, it, it was the, what gave them identity and worth and belonging was that redemptive event. And David goes back four centuries, long before his birth, and says, you are so gracious to these people. Four centuries ago, giving birth to this great nation you chose to redeem. Back again, looking back at this grace past, redemption work past. But then he also stretches forward again. I mean, notice the last segment there, and you have established for yourself your people, Israel, to be your people forever. 
God dwelling with his people, people with God. Something that finds its foundation in Jesus, its fulfillment in Jesus, and ultimately finds its finality in Revelation 21. You know, God being with his people, so he's stretching forward. And you notice these, these terms of relationship that, that are so personal and intimate. When he talks about Israel, it's like your people whom you redeem for yourself. And you establish for yourself your people to be your people forever. And you, O oh Lord, became their God. That's, that's intimate, eternal relationship and dwelling together. So he looks forward and sees that the people of Israel, which includes by nature of our faith in Jesus, all of us as the Israel of God with him, stretching future, dwelling with God. So I want you to, want to see here where, what he's doing and in response to these promises that God gives. He is praising and worshiping God um, based upon the personal grace that he's received and the personal grace forward that God has promised to him, as well as the corporate grace that God showed Israel and Egypt and, and forever when he dwells with them. In other words, David is not preoccupied with his palatial estate. Um, with his you know, royal chariot, with GPS and Bose speakers. And he's not caught up in the small harem that he has or the children that are, that are laughing and playing or the wine or the food. Now, granted, all of that stuff is to be received, with, a, with the exception of the harem, um, with a certain amount, of, <laughs> certain amount of thanksgiving and gratitude. But that's not where he lives. And that's not what causes his heart to soar and to live. It's his constant realization of God's grace in the past that redeemed and God's fullness of grace yet future that is waiting to be realized. And, and that's, that's where he lives. That's where we're supposed to live too. But you'll notice there's one final thing that he does. If the first part of David's response is all about praise of God, the last part we see him praying or petitioning the Lord for his promises. Um, we sometimes think that because God promised it, we don't have to pray for it. But that's not true. Our prayers oftentimes reflect what we truly treasure in our heart. And David treasures this future grace. And so look what he does. He petitions for the realization of these promises of God. He says, and now, O Lord, God, confirm forever the word that you have spoken concerning your servant and concerning his house. And do as you have spoken. And your name will be magnified forever, saying the Lord of hosts is God over Israel. And the house of your servant David will be established before you for you. O Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, have made this revelation to your servant, saying, I will build you a house. Therefore, your servant has found courage to pray this prayer to you. And now, O Lord God, you are God, and your words are true, and you have promised this good thing to your servant. Now, therefore, may it please you to bless the house of your servant so that it may continue forever before you. For you, O Lord God, have spoken, and with your blessing shall the house of your servant be blessed forever. He's praying God's promises to be realized. It just kind of struck me, it was a little bit um, convicting, that, you know, we oftentimes, if we examine our prayer life and what we give weight to, like kind of is at the center of our prayers, oftentimes it, it reflects a fascination or an obsession with present reality. Present pains, uh, health issues, um, lack of finances, uh, broken relationships, and, and we should be praying about those things, don't get me wrong. But it may be that if at the center of our prayer life are present tense problems, pleasures, or pains, then maybe we really are living for today and asking the Lord somehow to just make today better so we can get through. 
rather than a heart that's centered on redemption. Lord, and this is how men prayed, um, and we're encouraged to pray. One thing have I asked of the Lord, that's prayer. This is King David again. One thing have I asked of the Lord, that will I seek, future tense after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life and to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. He's praying for the realization of that personal dwelling. Or Jesus taught us, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Your will be done. They're petitioning God's kingdom to come down, which he already promised is going to come down. It's going to be a reality. And his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Or the final chapter of the Bible, even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. He knows the date and the hour, and it's not, it's not flexible. But we still yearn and pray for what our heart should yearn for most, a face-to-face encounter with our risen Savior, Jesus, who's going to make all things right. That's why it's important to him, and so he's praying for it, as should we. And your prayer life is a really good thermometer as to how, how much you're living for today, as opposed to how much you're living in light of, of redemption. So let me kind of wrap this up again. This is, this is how most people live, right here. Lost in the digital world or lost in the pain, problem, and pleasure world? David doesn't do that. His heart sings. His heart praises. And it's on the basis of God's redeeming grace in the past and the fullness of that grace in the future that lies beyond the boundaries of his own life. Past grace, future grace. And God did something definitive in the past and something full in the future. And on these two things, he finds the ground of his worship, his praise, and his living. This is the focus of his life. You notice what's missing? There's no mention of singing. There's no mention of harps. There's no mention of guitars or compelling worship bands. Um, There's no, no elaborate stained glass. It's simply the realization in his soul of God's manifold grace in his life, um, past and future, that lifts his soul up out of what we consider be the normal broken world to just worship the Lord. That's, that's really where worship comes from. A true life worship is the constant realization looking backward and forward, realizing that what has begun began before my birth and what's going to be concluded is far beyond my death. And if that's where our souls are, are anchored, well, then it's kind of like the, I was thinking, Golden Gate Bridge came to my mind, you know? You have the South Tower and the North Tower. Um, and the weight of the bridge is suspended by those two towers and the shoreline on each north and south. But the all entire weight is, is placed upon that. So when you're driving out over the middle of the bridge and underneath you is the chaotic water of the Pacific Ocean, which is rushing in and out of the bay, um, turbulent water, it's suspended by these two anchor points of the bridge. And it, it, it seems to me that what the Scripture tells us that, is that if our hearts are truly set on the anchor points of the cross in the past and the consummation in the future or to the work of redeeming love on the cross and forward to the return of Jesus, 
back to the forgiveness and righteousness that we got because of Jesus, forward to the establishment of righteousness and justice in the new creation, if, that's, if those are the towers upon which we rest our soul, then it's going to keep us from sinking into the chaos and being absorbed in the chaos and drowning because of this world. What Jesus talked about, the cares, the riches, and the pleasures. It's only as we maintain a solid balance on those past and future that we find ourselves elevated out of it and able to deal with it in a way that maintains joy and perspective and, and doesn't kill us or, or, or overwhelm us. You, you get what I mean? I mean, practically what that means for me, you know what I've done is I've taken scriptures and I've memorized that, that are about this tower and scriptures that I've memorized about this tower. And I go through them every week. Why? Because my soul needs to be elevated above the chaos of life. Instead of sinking, and I wonder how many of us have those anchors and just constantly being reminded that, you know, I have been redeemed by the blood of Christ. I am no longer um, a, a sinner condemned, but I am a saint who is righteous in the Lord because of Jesus. And I don't care how I die or when I die, because the best is yet to come on this side. And, and as you continually remind your soul by prayer and through the Holy Spirit, it elevates your life. and You're able to praise and worship and live from a different place. I'll tell you, um, just being able to live based upon our faith in things that lie outside the extent or boundaries of our life is so important, isn't it? I mean, Memorial Day is a perfect example of that. Two years ago, my wife and I took our two, three, three kids. I almost forgot how many I had. We took our three kids. We clipped roses from the back, and we took them to the Fairfield Cemetery. And we looked for... um, gravestones with, you know, um, some kind of markers that say that the person either served or died for his country. There's some Medal of Honor winners out there in Fairfield Cemetery. And, um, and we put flowers, and, and it's, it's strange what you feel when you walk through a cemetery like that. And, and even as I was walking through, and my, my kids didn't really fully understand what this is. This is a place of dead people. But two things were happening in my heart as I'm walking through the gravestones. One is that it sobered me to realize that inevitably I will be there. And that is a good sobering. Most of us want to ignore it. But I think Solomon was wise in Ecclesiastes when he said, it's better to be in a house of mourning than a house of feasting. That is to be reminded of one's mortality so you don't fritter away your life. That was happening. But then there was another piece of me looking at these gravestones of men who died in service to our country. I don't know all of their hearts, but I would imagine there were some, which is why we have Memorial Day, who recognized that they were fighting for something bigger than themselves. They inherited this amazing, glorious country founded on these glorious principles of freedom and justice, which predated their births. And believing in them, believing in something bigger than their lives, something bigger than... Than, than the right here, right now, they went to war and gave their lives to protect for the next generation what many take for granted. Laying down their lives for something bigger. Now, we do live in a great country. It has its massive problems. But you and I, the starting point for us is when Jesus gave his life to form a great people. A great people, 
um, who would reflect his majesty and character. Um, A starting point that gives us worth and value and belonging and identity that far outweighs what it means to be an American. You are a follower of Jesus and part of the kingdom of God, a holy nation, a kingdom of priests. And to live in that reality that's 2,000 years old, you're part of something much bigger. You've inherited as a believer something massive. And we are to be about the work of making sure that work continues while it is God's work and he's the one pushing the mower to live and die and fight for the next generation. Something bigger than ourselves. And how do we do that except by setting our foundations firmly on cross and his coming again. And if that doesn't do anything for you, and I don't mean any disrespect, then perhaps it's because you're right here. Right here. When you should be right here. Like two wings of a plane. You can only soar with two wings. God's past and future grace. Know that he's with you in the middle. Where are you at? Here or here? Here or here? You just take a moment to answer that question for yourself. And John, you guys could come on up.